Kurt Alper, and the Human Brass of Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Thursday. This is his weekly Monday appearance, except he's made it, in this case, on a Thursday. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest. And on this edition of the program, as he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, naturally, Shoei Otani. Shoei Otani. He signed with the Angels shortly after the recording of this program concluded. Uh, and that certainly colors the comments made by managing editor Dave Cameron here. However, it doesn't render them irrelevant. In fact, without knowing Otani's actual landing spot, what Cameron does is to document the logic that ultimately brought Otani to Anaheim, or would have brought Otani to Anaheim. He also guesses at how Otani's representatives might have communicated how best to sign their client, which might be why, for example, both the Mariners and Angels made a trade with the Twins for international bonus pool money within 24 hours of each other. Also uh, discussed here what Tyler Chatwood's contract with the Cubs means for free agent Alex Cobb. Most immediately, it means that Alex Cobb will be more expensive this offseason than originally anticipated. And also the prospects whose contracts were dissolved following the Braves' indiscretions in international free agency. They've received, on average, about 40-50% to of the bonus money they originally received when signing out of Latin America. Is that fair to them? Is it fair to clubs? Is it fair to everyone? Uh, just an example of the array of questions that I asked Dave Cameron. Also, uh, in this edition of the program, Dave Cameron embarks upon what one might characterize as a very hypothetical scenario. If you had a market value of $100 million as, like, the you know, you were the greatest podcast host of all time. That flight of imagination and others like it and what's to follow. Uh, what I would like to say before we get to that conversation is that Fangraphs memberships exist for a reasonable sum. Readers of Fangraphs.com could support the great work that appears in those electronic pages. And for a slightly less reasonable sum, those same readers, if they so choose, can acquire an ad-free membership, which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, not only facilitating faster loading speeds, I'm told, but also liberating one, emancipating one from the distortive effects of advertising. Fangraphs membership and ad-free membership available at Fangraphs.com. Going there and then clicking around. Okay. Uh, what is it? It is Fangraphs. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the conversation with Dave Cameron. Then. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? That same managing editor, Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. Uh, there, there are uh, events, baseball-related events, that need to be addressed. However, uh, once again, I am going to uh, temporarily hijack the podcast, uh, present to you a real-life scenario, and ask you what in baseball is like that. Are you ready for that? Yeah. When you're done temporarily hijacking the podcast, who do you give it back to? I, I give it back temporary. to the people. I give it back to the people. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, I give it. I give it back to those people. Uh, who have downloaded an episode of Fangraphs Audio, uh, th- theoretically looking for the same sort of crack analysis that appears in the electronic pages of Fangraphs.com. I think those people have been uh, dissuaded from doing that ever again. Well, that's fine too, uh, at least f- so far as I'm concerned. I think that I think what I do is delightful and whimsical. Okay. Okay. Well, as long as you think so. So <clears throat> I lost my phone uh, roughly last Sunday. Okay. No, Saturday. I lost my phone. I believe what happened is as follows. Uh, my wife and I brought our four-month-old son to a winter market of some sort. Uh, as you are probably aware, if you have a young child, getting him or her in and out of the car, in and out, in, out of the car, back into the car, if you have additional bags, 
there are a lot of uh, uncontrolled variables in that exchange. It's super obnoxious, yeah. Yes, it's super obnoxious. And so I believe in the process, I left uh, my phone on top of the car. The reason uh, why I also think this is because as we were getting onto Route 1, uh, leaving the winter market, we heard something tumble off of the car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, very probably my phone, okay? Okay, so I guess my question would be, was this a Nokia or did you, uh, did you upgrade it like the Motorola Razor? This was an L, so it was not the nice, it was not the nice, it was an LG2, which I'm okay. led to believe was several generations behind. Right. Um, but what I did then was I investigated uh, cheap phones, cheap cell phones. Yeah. This one that we bought, uh, because it, it seems as though every plan that you get now, you have to, they want you not to purchase it outright, but to add it yeah, to yeah. your right. plan, want, right? Yeah, they want to lease it to you. Right, which is different than how it used to be. It used to yeah. be you could upgrade every two years. Yeah, it used to be that the price of the phone was subsidized to, in order to lock you into a contract. Contracts have gone away, and so now they just charge you the full price of the phone. Right. It, that seems worse for the consumer. Am I right or wrong? Uh, not necessarily. It depends on uh, if you – so some people got really frustrated with their contracts, and I think T-Mobile make a lot of subscriber gains by kind of being the ones to lead away from contracts. Um, a lot of people felt like, oh, well, I hate my, I hate my carrier, and there was a lot of um, angst about their inability to switch either providers or switch phones or whatever. So this gives you more freedom. Um, and more choice, but it comes at a cost. So you pay more now to have more flexibility. Okay, but I did, right, and I don't care for the flexibility at all. Right. I care for the cheapest price. However, what I did uh, following the, uh, the the terrible disappearance of my phone is I did research. Um, it, whereas the cheapest phone I could have bought through Verizon in this particular case would have cost $10 a month over 24 months, yeah. I found what is known as a Moto E4. Okay. It is Molarota brand Moto E4 unlocked on Amazon.com for $130. Okay. I simply brought this into my local Verizon uh, dealer, yeah, and uh, they were able uh, to add a SIM card, and now I have a phone for roughly half of the cheapest version that I could have bought at the store itself. If you want to save even more money, stop mm. being with Verizon. They are the most expensive carrier by a mile. Are they? Oh, yeah. It's not even close. Well, that's quite possible. I believe the reason we have Verizon currently uh, is because we lived in a place in New Hampshire where Verizon was... It was like the only game in town, yeah. It was the only, yeah, and it was, I think it was, the only, right, it was the only one on which you could get a real connection. It's yeah. true. We do, live in, we do live closer to a city now. Uh, so it's possible that... You should look into something called Republic Wireless. Republic Wireless? Yeah. So the, their shtick or their their game is basically that they really want you to use uh, Wi-Fi calling instead of data. Mm-hmm. Um, so they sell phones that use Wi-Fi calling, and whenever possible, it will connect you to a Wi-Fi signal instead of to an LTE tower. And if you're if you're mostly in your house that has Wi-Fi, or if you're mostly at coffee shops that have Wi-Fi, you're you're generally not like in the woods. Um, you can get very cheap phones and very cheap plans uh, for which them. makes sense. Hey, it makes sense anyway. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I suppose it would make sense if we were all calling on Skype or whatever yeah. more often. Right. I mean, Wi-Fi calling just means that instead of having to use the towers, we're using the data that you know is already existing. Like, you're already mm-hmm. paying for your home Wi-Fi. Might as well use it to make phone calls too. Ah, that's very uh, that's uh, that's a good good information. But I suppose my question is, what did baseball is like this, which is <clears throat> realizing? Well, there's a couple different steps to it. On the one hand, I realized by accident 
Um, I only I only began to research this sort of um, kind of back channel towards purchasing a phone. It's and I I recognize it's not a very sophisticated one, but I'm not a very sophisticated consumer. No, uh, no I only no. realized the back channel once I had made a mistake. There was that, and then there was the other thing of sort of going through a slightly different means to acquire this item that was the same but much less expensive. And I'm curious if this is the Miles Mikolas of phones. Um, I don't know. But it's it possible. Is. I would think, like, um, in the in the scenario, like, I don't think the Cardinals drove away without a pitcher on their roof. <laughs> like, you know, like, I don't, I don't know how the pitcher, the Cardinals fit into the, like, the you don't think that was Lance Lynn up there? No, I don't, yeah, I don't think they, they were like, where did Lance Lynn go? They were just like, screw Lance Lynn, he wants $100 million, peace out, buddy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I get that you're trying to segue to Miles Mikolas. Well, I don't need Mikolas. to, I don't need to seg- segue to Miles Mikolas, but my question is, is there anything that's comparable to that? Is acquiring, acquiring similarly, a similar sort of item or device, uh, Simply by kind of looking outside of the normal, normal uh, talent pool or whatever. I mean, so if we're gonna like try and tie it back to something in the news recently, maybe it's like the Mariners and Angels looking for international bonus money to offer to Shohei Otani. Uh, both teams, I think, made trades with the Twins the other night, where they sent uh, recent draftees, a third round pick and a fifth round pick, respectively, to the Twins for a million dollars each in international bonus money, which is now a million dollars they can give to Shohei Otani. So they find themselves in the situation where they are. Uh, attempting to lure this, you know, once in a generation player or whatever, like this, this, uh, it's not even so much the player, it's really the situation where you can just basically get a $200 billion asset and change the fate of your franchise overnight. Um, and they needed, uh, to go acquire, um, cheaply some money that they could then give to Otani. And so they say, okay, like, I don't have this, you know, I don't have the ability to acquire, you know, international bonus money. Um, just by purchasing it on the market, like you didn't want to purchase it from Verizon. So, uh, so they went to the twins and were like, hey, discount seller of international money, mm-hmm. have a draft pick and give us some. Are they, now, are the twins, are they notorious? I mean, this wouldn't make sense because they, of course, at least in my head, they're the team that's, that signed Miguel Sano famously. Uh, also, I believe Eddie Rosario was an international signee. Yeah. Uh, so it's not as though, I mean, if, if those are the only two players they've signed, they've certainly struck gold. <laughs> no, uh, the Twins have actually been pretty active in the international market. They have $3 million that has recently become free because they voided their deal with their top international signing from this past July, mm-hmm. uh, whose name I think might be Jeffrey Marte. That could be it. Or it could be something di- else. He could, have a, Jeffrey Marte, he could, have, he could yeah. have a different name. could be another mm-hmm. person. Uh, right. not, neither Jeffrey nor Marte. Right. Uh, I don't remember exactly who it was. But the, whoever they gave $3 million to this past summer had some physical issue after signing. And so they voided his contract. They were re- rewarded with their $3 million in international spending money, money back. And uh, apparently they decided not to go sign any of the guys the Braves uh, lost as part of their penalty, or those guys decided not to sign with them. Either way, uh, the Twins, once they were eliminated from the Otani uh, sweepstakes, then they said, well, we've got all this international money. We can't use it. Let's sell it. Right. And so they've so what? They acquired a uh, – it looks like David Benuelos is one of them? Yeah. He was a fifth-round pick for the Mariners uh, who turned into – I think he was like the 10th-rated prospect in their organization, according to Baseball America – uh, kind of a catch and throw catcher, but you know, at least a guy who looks like he could have a big league career, uh, which is uh, which is 
pretty good for the equivalent of a third or fifth round pick. Yeah, uh, especially if, I, if in the Twins' case, like if if it all it cost them was a million dollars in their national signing bonus money, they couldn't use anyway. Yeah, yeah. it's not so bad. And it, and uh, it looks like also in the middle of November, the Mariners traded uh, giant. Brazilian pitcher Tiago Vieira to the White Sox for international bonus money as well. Correct. They were stocking up in their Otani pursuit. And where are they now in terms of the rankings of, of uh, international bonus? Fourth, but right. uh, maybe third among teams still in the running. So like uh, the Yankees acquired a bunch of international money, and then and then Otani told them like you're on the wrong coast. Um, so the Rangers have three and a half million, and they're still in the running. Uh, I think the Mariners and Angels are close, but like the Angels have a little bit more. I think maybe the Angels have two seven five, and the Mariners have two five or something like that. Um, and then the four National League teams that are still in it, they all can't spend more than three hundred thousand. They're all in the penalty box. So uh, the Dodgers, Giants, Padres, and Cubs uh, can offer them three hundred thousand dollars, and they can't trade for more money. Like it wouldn't do them any good. So at this point, it's Otani is choosing between three hundred grand from a National League club. Or two and a half to three and a half million from an American League club. Now, it's, I think it's pretty clear Otani is going to receive nothing close to his his market value. Yeah. Which is what? Where, do you have an estimate for his market value at this point? I think if he was an actual free agent this winter, he would get somewhere between two twenty five and two fifty. Two twenty five and. And two fi- oh, okay. Wow, that's a lot of money. Yeah, he would get um, he would get more than any other free agent. Like he would instantly like, you know, a lot of teams uh, would say, okay, look, there's you, Darvish. We could give you Darvish 150 million, or we could go give this like guy who might be as good as you, Darvish, and has doesn't have a history of arm problems and isn't 30 and can hit. So you basically just take the Darvish price and then start adding reasons to pay him more. Yeah, well, in terms of comps as well, uh, Travis Sochik wrote a post today. Looking over various combinations of player, yeah, and I think the worst, the worst combination on which he settled was Tyler Glasnow and Michael Franco, yeah, um, which which Sachik noted probably rightfully it would be a disappointment right. given the amount of tension that's the attention that's been paid to it, yeah, but that's still a sort of bananas type of player uh, who can have. Who can have the upside? I mean, you know, because those players are not nothing. Either. Yeah, right, yeah. Uh, I mean, to have a player who could, you know, be roughly the equivalent of both. And, you know, actually, Tyler Glasnow is actually has pretty – he has a pretty decent uh, projections for 2018. Right. I mean, um, yeah. The, the, I think he struck a million guys out in the minors, and toward the second half of the year he started throwing strikes in the minor leagues. So there's, like, some performance reasons to think that he could be not that far away from improving significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, like, the thing with Franco's. Like, Franco's bad is okay-ish. It's not great. He had a bad year last year. Um, but, like, the real downside and the reason that Franco's kind of losing his spot in Philadelphia um, is that he's in um, uh, a defensive liability at third base who probably belongs at first base, but they have Reese Hoskins now. Um, and he's, you know, Franco's not a plus runner. Uh, Otani is, like, legitimately one of the fastest guys in baseball. So it would be like Michael Franco with 80 speed. Wait, did you say Otani's one of the fastest guys? Oh, yeah. Otani's got, like, a... He, Otani has like been graded as an eighty on the scouting scale on the speed scale. He's at least a seventy. Are you serious? Yeah, Otani is also like really freaking fast. Yeah. This is that's an, that's bananas. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't even realize that part about him. Uh, didn't think. About I think this. like one of the interesting conversations I've had with some people in the game is like if Otani couldn't pitch, it's like say he blew out his arm, uh, it wouldn't be that crazy to just stick him in center field and say, yeah, you're going to be a plus plus defender 
with power, like, you know, maybe you're Byron Buxton, and that's your new downside. Like, he's not quite as toolsy as Buxton, but there's mm-hmm. probably more power there. So, um, yeah, I mean, I had uh, one friend or of like the game. If, uh, like if Jock Peterson could was, like, a better fielder? Yeah, sure. Uh, right, Jock Peterson with speed. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one friend of the game call him Bryce Harper White. So, so that's a, and that's just as a hitter. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, I think uh, there's a reason everyone wants Otani. He's a weird freakish beast of a player. So, uh, Sachik also mentioned in that, in that post from earlier today, uh, he cited Mike Petriello's work, uh, using yeah. some of the pitch tracking data from Japan. Yeah. And I guess that, I guess Otani, and, um, for the data that was available to Major League Baseball, Otani was sitting at 97, 98 miles per hour. Yeah, I think what they said he has Luis Severino's fastball, both in velocity and spin. <laughs> so, so if Luis Severino was also an above average big league hitter with speed. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, there's, it was Severino and then, um, I, f- I forget who, um, I forget who Sachik had on the other side. But that's, it, it, they're all absurd. All of the combinations yeah, right. are absurd. Right. Yeah. But, so when people are like, oh, 200 million for a guy who's never played, it's like, the upside here is insane. Like, someone right. asked me in my chat the other day, like, what's a realistic projection for Otani? And I was like, anything less than four wins is probably disappointing. Because, I mean, it's a 100-mile-an-hour fastball with command and a pretty good breaking ball. Like, he doesn't have to have pinpoint control to be at least an okay major league pitcher, right? Like, Tyler Chatwood just got $38 million, and he can't throw strikes. So velocity and spin and, you know, Chatwood doesn't really strike anybody out either. He just gets ground balls. That's kind of his thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's worth $13 million a year in this market. So it's like, okay, if Otani is, like, not actually that good of a pitcher – and he's just, you know, Madison Bumgarner at the plate. So, you know, it was below a league average hitter, but really good for a pitcher. Bumgarner's been worth a win per year uh, yeah, over I, other pitchers as a, with his hitting ability. Like, Otani only needs to be, like, a slightly above average pitcher with some hitting ability to be a four-win player. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's – and I was going over that with Sachik because I think, you know, at one point he had written a post maybe about looking at the advantage that American league teams might have because of the um, – they could offer Otani a DH role – but honestly, because the bar is so low yeah. uh, for for pitcher offense, being able to sustain some sort of you know something that that it wouldn't even have to be you know league average, but you could be hitting like a shortstop and be a genius yeah. a genius hitter as a as a pitcher. Yeah, I mean, I think there's you know the money is different between the American League teams and the National League teams. So if he just you know if he wants that few million dollars of signing bonus, then he should sign with an AL team. But if I'm Otani's reps, I'm signing with an NL team. I think. It's significantly more likely that he he can bat 200 times a year as a pitcher hitting for himself and a pitcher pinch hitting for other pitchers. Um, you know, like on his off days, he just comes in, hits once. It's not that big a deal. He doesn't have to DH. He doesn't have to play, hit four times. He just gets one at bat, goes back to the tunnel, goes and has the rest of his off day. Um, and he'll get 200, 250 at bats and put up, you know, a win to two wins of value in offense versus having to compete with, you know, DHs, right? Like, the guys out there who, you know, the Chris Carters who had 42 home runs and then couldn't get a job. Like, those are the guys you're competing with for DH at bats. Um, and the bar is just significantly higher where I think with an American League team, it wouldn't be that surprising if Otani ended up as just a pitcher, you know, next year. But or hitting, the hitting half a bunch, this year. Though. Yeah. Uh, all right. So to bring this back, though, uh, to the scenario that I forced you to consider at the very beginning, um, um, you compared it to the, the Mariners' decision to acquire international bonus pool money, because none of these figures, none of the none of the figures, none of the, the amount of uh, the bonus amounts that teams have to offer to Otani, approximate 
at all his actual market value. I guess my instinct is to think that the actual bonus won't matter. It's not really a, a major factor in Otani's decision making because he knows he's going to get nothing like uh, nothing like his market value to begin with. So why? It, I mean, I guess if that's true, then it seems as though the Mariners' efforts are in vain. But I have to think that they are not operating under the under the yeah. assumption that they're in vain. So my feeling would be. Yes, he's not going to get anything close to what he's worth, but two million is better than no million. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. If you had a market value of a hundred million dollars, as like the you know you were the greatest podcast host of all time, but but you were just locked in at Fangraphs and you were like, I can't leave, even though my market value is huge. I just am so loyal to the Fangraphs audience. I have to stay. Uh, and would you go to Appleman and be like, I'm worth a hundred million. Don't give me any more than what I already make. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't reward me at all for that because you can't give me a hundred, so give me nothing. Of course not. You would be like, I'll take whatever you got. Like, all the extra money, throw it my way. Uh, and I, I would guess, like, Otani is clearly not driven by money, otherwise he would have stayed in Japan for two more years. But I doubt that money doesn't matter at all. Um, and if it doesn't matter to him, it definitely matters to his representatives. <laughs> so, um, you know, a couple million dollars in the grand scheme of things isn't going to change anyone's, change his life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not zero. And I don't think the Mariners and Angels would have gone and traded legitimate prospects out of their system for a million dollars in extra money if they weren't told, one, you're still in this, uh, two, you might have a really good chance to give him this money. Like, if 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 Otani was going to already decide he was going to sign with the Giants or the Dodgers or the Padres or the Cubs, I don't think that the, the representatives for those teams or the representatives for Otani would have told those teams, yeah, go ahead and go trade for international money um, because then you're just pissing off organizations who just gave away prospects for no reason. So uh, my sense would be that the Mariners and Angels made that trade with the same team on the same night because they were told we're probably going to an American League team, go get some money, and, and try and compete with the Rangers for money. So oh, so you think that there's a real chance he's going to go to an American League club then? I, th- I mean, I think the fact that the two AL teams, like the AL teams aren't allowed to, but the fact that the AL teams uh, simultaneously went and traded for money suggests to me that they were told to do so. Mm, okay. What do you think about Travis Sotrick's argument on behalf of the San Diego Padres? I think it's um, compelling mm-hmm. to to a degree. I think um, uh, if I was Otani, I would consider the the value of adjusting to this two way lifestyle and American lifestyle in a really low pressure environment. It doesn't get much less low pressure than San Diego. Mm-hmm. Like if he just really wants to like guaranteed at bats, guaranteed innings, try it out, see how it works. Um, not have to worry about whether he's costing his team wins because wins don't matter to San Diego for the next couple of years. That's not a bad idea. Um, my guess is, like, as a competitive individual, that's a tough reason to make the decision is to, to go to a losing team on purpose to make it easier for yourself, and I'm guessing he's not going to do that. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because th- there does seem to be some suggestion, right, that he would prefer a smaller market to a larger one. Yeah. Um, especially in terms of media scrutiny, that sort of thing. But I believe, uh, if Craig Edwards' research is correct, that there is this year where there was a greater correlation between uh, essentially r- revenue or payroll and wins than, than there has been in years prior. Right. Is that, is that what right? What do those two things have to do with each other? <laughs> the Otani wants a small market, but revenue and wins are now highly correlated. Because because you said that he's also a competitive – if he's a competitive player, he doesn't want to go into a losing situation necessarily. Right. Low, lower market doesn't always be lower money though. Hmm. Like the, Mar- the Mariners are a smaller market baseball-wise in terms of like their media with it. Two beat writers, three beat writers, uh, but the Mariners have plenty of money. Oh, okay. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. 
How could the they Giants have, so much have what, the Giants have like four beat writers? Like, the, like there are small media markets in baseball that are not small cities. Like San Francisco is not a small city, but it's not Boston or New York or Chicago or Philadelphia. So, well, I guess there's two things: me, uh, there's media market and then market size, right? Right. I think he cares a lot more about media market. Ah, okay. So it's not necessarily market size. It's I mean, the Dodgers and Angels play in Los Angeles, the second largest city in America, right? And they're still on the list. So, right. But in the, yeah, in the, I, there's more I think he cares. I think he cares about not having Dan Shaughnessy on the radio calling him a bust after one bad start. Oh, God. Like that's the. I think what he's trying to avoid is the zoo mentality of like illogical, irrational sports radio, crazy tabloid headlines, all the stuff that goes along with Boston, New York, Philadelphia to a degree, Chicago to a lesser degree. Like, yeah, I mean, like Los Angeles has you know Bill Plaschke, but like. You know, it's not the same <laughs> as it is in Boston and New York. And, like, you know, San Diego and Seattle don't have those guys. San Francisco doesn't really have those guys. Mm-hmm. Why – how could – I mean, what is the reason they don't have it? Is it because that the – is it because the newspapers have a greater uh, sense of taste and decorum? <laughs> or is it just because if you, if you fill up – if you have a lot of people who are really interested in the analysis – there's going to be it's going to be a crowded market, and therefore they're naturally going to emerge polemicists who will attract attention. Yeah, I think it probably has to do with the um, culture that has been perpetuated in those cities. Like sports talk radio is a huge deal in Boston, right? Like there's been like competing sports talk radio stations there for years, yes. having like huge ratings battles. Like this has been like a huge part of the Boston sports scene is like WEEI and whatever the other one is. I mean, I mean it's interesting. I guess it's right. It reveals – the importance of it is revealed by the fact that you, who have never lived in Boston, are familiar right. with the call letters of the – Yeah, I mean, right. Like they, these are like significant players in that media market where it's – you know, the sports radio station in most cities, I think, is, like, not nearly as big a factor as it is in Boston. Yeah. Um, and so I think th- that kind of history has just shaped the market and shaped – like, sports radio is just not a um, rational place of discourse. Like, it's Rarely not – yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, in general, it's shouting and it's the, uh, you know, around-the-horn style, yell at each other and say shocking things, and that's how you get ratings. And I think that – that idea of uh, entertainment just hasn't fostered itself in most of the other cities in America. The well, and it, yeah, and it's interesting because well, so of course Alex Spear does occur, does appear occasionally, and uh, right, it's not like they never have anyone smart on the airways. Right, does have it, but it, there is so much. Rarely, that, uh, and I know this is not uh, my opinion on this will not change change the minds of uh, the world, but yes, it's very difficult to, to listen to because. Yeah. Uh, because I, because it's so nice to hear people make a point and attempt to back it up and then listen to someone else's point right. and say, oh, well, yeah, that's a very interesting point you've made. Let's attempt to uh, uh, synthesize the, these points we've made and reach a greater understanding. That's great to hear. Yeah. So, that doesn't happen on the radio that much. No, it doesn't. Uh, no, it doesn't. And unless it's NPR, in whichever case, everyone's just whispering. <laughs> and that's and fine. Shockingly, NPR doesn't really cover sports. Yeah, that's true. That, yeah, you can get it like uh, Saturday morning if you wake up early enough, I guess. Uh, okay, so, there, so you're people saying, with small children, we do not wake up that early on Saturday mornings to listen to sports. So, so you're saying that there is uh, some, there is there appears to be some logic to the Mariners' decision to acquire more bonus pool money, even though. However much they're able to acquire in terms of pool money, it will never approximate the it will never approximate uh, Otani's worth. 
Yeah, I, I'm guessing that the Mariners Angels were instructed to go do that. And it was probably pointed out to them, look, the Twins would be a good person to go trade with. Well, do you, do you think that, that it's that interactive, the process? Yeah. I, I would guess, like, the, the teams are in regular communications with the representatives of CAA, mm-hmm. and they're gonna wanna know where they stand in the process, both just for their own planning purposes, because if, like, if any of them made their presentation then were just immediately eliminated, they wanted to get on with the rest of their offseason, right? Like, they, these teams have other plans, they have things they're gonna do if they don't get Otani, they're gonna have things they do if they do get Otani, and, like, they can only wait so long. So, you know, I would guess that after the presentations, there was some communication from the representatives that said, like, good job, Will it be in touch further, or uh, hey, we're not interested, or something along those lines? Like I doubt of the seven teams, um, none of them have a feel for how their presentation went and what their chances are at this point. Like Brian Cashman had talked about, like after filling out the questionnaire or whatever and talking with the representatives a little bit, he was pretty sure that they were going to get cut first, and he wasn't shocked when they got told them he wasn't. They weren't moving on to the second round. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would guess that the teams of the seven, they probably have a sense of where they stand in that seven. You you made a point about CA. That's uh, what uh, what does it stand for? Creative CA? Arts Association Creative or something. Arts, Creative yeah, Arts right. Agency. Yeah. Now this is a group of agents, and um, <clears throat> you made a point about how they were they would be aware of the, the fact, for example, that Minnesota Twins had international uh, pool money to with which you know they could that they could deal to Mariners, Angels, etc. Do you have a, Do you think that agencies are keenly aware? Now we're you know you. Uh, it's, it's certainly not a common. Uh, Eric Long and I just talked about this. Talk about uh, like baseball war rooms, right? Mm-hmm. And um, or you know uh, during the um, during the winter meetings, for example, there's clearly an understanding among uh, front office members how much the team has to spend that off season. Yeah. Do you think that in almost the same way that a typical agency, a larger agency, will have a very strong notion of how much money each each major league team has to spend? Absolutely. So they if know an agent, who, who Yeah, if an agency center? doesn't know where the money is, they yeah. are falling down on the job. That okay, is uh, yeah. one of the primary things that they're there for is to be aware of the market, be aware of you know where to send their clients, be aware of who's bidding. Um, yeah, I mean this is like one of their main functions. That's right. Okay, right. And I know that, and, and you do this quite a bit, um, but I, I have to think that uh, comparables, right? So yeah. learning. I mean, obviously they don't. The CAA does not cover everyone, but they're going to have – they're always going to be interested if they have a client um, – if they have client A, they're going to be interested if client B, a very similar client, you know, or you know, a player, a very similar player, has signed for X dollars over Y years, right? Yeah. They have some understanding. That so when they approach a, a team, they say, well, this, uh, you know, this player B over here, he signed for this amount of money. That's what we're looking for. Yeah, I mean, I think comps are a huge deal, uh, mm-hmm. especially in, in arbitration. They're ninety-five percent of the job, uh, but even in free agency, like I, let's say Tyler Chatwood got thirty-eight billion dollars this morning. I guarantee you, Tyler Chatwood's name is going to come up every time Alex Cobb talks to anyone. Because like, if, agent, if the agents go to him and they're like, "Hey, guess what? The price of like a broken starting pitcher with a history of arm problems and command issues, but like you know some interesting metrics that suggest he could be better, and like you know a little bit of an upside play for a back-end starter, like." Chatwood's clearly inferior to Cobb. He got 38 million. You can't go anywhere near that number for Alex Cobb. Now it's 50, 60, 70 million because like there's a significant separation between those two and Chatwood just set the floor. <laughs> like, you know, Cobb's not going to come anywhere close to 40. Start at 60. Start at 60. Now, uh, what, what did you call, what did you pre- predict for Cobb in the, in the preseason? 456 maybe feels right. Let's, let's look it up just so we're not totally guessing. 
So as you're looking it up, could you comment on whether you think it's going to be higher than that now? I guess 460, the crowd guessed 456. Okay. Uh, now I would certainly take the over. Uh, given Chatwood signing, I I don't think Cobb's going to settle for 56. Uh, I would guess he's more 60 to 70, maybe 70 to 80. Like, the price of pitchers went up today with Tyler Chatwood getting $38 million. But there isn't, isn't there a premium for, uh, for the first player signed, typically? I think that's generally true when the guys are signing like right out of the gate, like when you have early November signings. There's extra money for people who will give teams a little bit of security of early signings, but it's December 7th. Like at this point last year, there had already been like 75 trades and almost all the free agents were off the board. Like we were in the middle of the winter meetings last year. Chris Sale got traded, I think, a year ago today. Adam Eaton got traded a year ago tomorrow. Like we're past the, we're giving you extra money to help us start our off-season <laughs> part of the winter. Like, now we're just into, this is what the market commands for these guys after everyone's sat out there for a month. Yeah, okay. Hey, I want to ask you about, uh, I mean, we, dis- we discussed Chatwood a little bit. I know uh, Chatwood had the distinction this year of being the player uh, I omitted yeah. from from the crowdsourcing, which is why there isn't a crowdsource estimate for him. What did you What did you guess for Chatwood? 330. So he didn't get like dramatically more than I expected, but you know, it's three billion dollars a year more. I mean, it's not zero. Right. And so, uh, so what Chatwood is, as you, I mean, you already characterized him, uh, an interesting pitcher who's uh, contended with injury at some points. Yeah. Um, n- uh, not without flaw, obviously, but he's also, he induces a lot of ground balls and he's shown, um, the ability to be effective at points. Yeah. And, and he throws fits, hard. And that fits well in the Cubs, uh, uh in the Cubs, uh, Rotation because why? Well, I think they're looking for upside. Um, I mean, if they wanted like a safe, just like this is our back end starter, and then we discard him when we get to October. Like you, Doug Fister signed for four million dollars. Uh, you know, like or Miles Mikolas. Yeah, Mikolas. I I, I I have a t- uh, I, as you know, I I have an urge to call Mikolas because it yeah. does sound. Uh, a, I mean, po- Mikolas, you know, Mikolas, Mikolas. Mm-hmm. However you say his last name. Yeah. That guy signed for what five. Six million dollars a year, seven million dollars a year, something like that. Um, maybe it was eight million. Anyway, less than ten million a year on a two-year deal. Like these are the kinds of like safer back-end strike-throwing guys. That if you were just like, yeah, I just want a fifth starter that's giving me 140 okay innings. Um, but that's not what the Cubs wanted. The Cubs wanted a guy who could, you know, be an impact arm, who had some upside, who potentially could work his way into the rotation. Like, they're losing Jake Arrieta, who was kind of that guy after John Lester. Um, you know, he didn't pitch well enough, so Kyle Hendricks kind of took his spot in the rotation. But, but Arietta was, like, clearly part of their playoff rotation plans, and that's what the Cubs were looking for. Chatwood's performance record doesn't suggest that it's there, but the stuff certainly does. Um, and the, the, you know, the kind of lazy comp this winter has been Charlie Morton, because Charlie Morton was this hard-throwing, uh, high spin guy who signed for not a lot of money and then turned out to be really good for the Astros. Um, I don't think Chatwood's as good as Charlie Morton, but I think that's kind of what they're hoping for. Is look, we're not just signing a fifth starter here; we're maybe signing a two-three starter in, in October. Um, and you know, like the there's a, probably a little bit of a floor difference here, where if Doug Fister's not very good, you probably have to cut him. Or if Mikolas isn't very good, okay, now you've got a long reliever who throws strikes and, you know, hittable 90-mile-an-hour fastballs. If Tyler Chatwood isn't very good as a starter, well, he throws 95 as a starter. He might throw, like, 98 in relief. Like, there's a chance mm-hmm. that if Chatwood's bad as a starter, they just sign their setup guy. Okay, all right. And uh, what, I guess, as the prices of relievers and 
Yeah, starters I mean, kind of grow Mike Miner just got three twenty-seven as a reliever who had one good year and yeah. a long history of arm problems. Like relievers aren't going to come cheap this winter. Uh, Addison Reed's going to probably get you know more than three thirty-eight or three thirty-nine. Although Miner, uh, a good chance that Miner will start. I mean, they're going to put him back in the rotation, but it's kind of the same idea. I think it's the same bet, right? Like let's try this guy as a starter. If it doesn't work, we we know he's a good reliever. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a little bit of a like a fallback plan there. Um, but if you just went and, like, signed a straight reliever, like, if you just went and signed an Addison Reed, who obviously isn't going to start at any point, like, it's probably going to cost you 440 or 444 or something. Like, I think the Cubs could potentially justify, okay, let's spend $13 million a year on Chatwood as a gamble of a starter, because we'd rather give him that with that upside than just give Addison Reed 10 or 11 or $12 million a year and know we're just getting a reliever, because maybe Chatwood could be that reliever too. Right, okay. So you have, uh, so you're not only buying the pitcher's possible performance in the rotation, you're buying a backup plan as well at the same time. Yeah, and I think that's what velocity does for you, right? Is like if you're mid-90s as a starter, it's a lot easier to see you transitioning into that late-inning relief role um, than, you know, these back-end command guys who, you know, like occasionally one of these guys starts throwing significantly harder, but, like, I don't think anyone imagines Doug Fister throwing 97 in the eighth inning next year. Hey, on this topic, and I understand, I mean, this is sort of an exception that, that proves the rule to which you're pointing right now, but I had the I had the pleasure, I guess, of uh, publishing the Rangers Zips projections the other day, uh, yeah. crafted by Dan Zimborski. <clears throat> I was not... I. I was not aware of how good Alex Claudio had been this past year. Yeah, he was pretty good. He was pretty good. Yeah, he he what he throws eighty seven roughly, yeah. and he has a he has a um, uh, I guess his his changeup is seventy miles per hour. Right, um, and that's actually faster than it used to be. But um, he gets a bazillion ground balls. He gets a lot of ground balls. Yeah, and he does. He really does not get a lot of swings and misses. No, yeah, he's um, a he's a uh, kind of a Brandon Kinsler type, where it's just like ground balls all the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's just and, and it's a uh, it's a strange way he gets there. But but Claudio uh, is projected for two wins in uh, in 2018. I'll take the under. Oh, oh, that's a good. Uh, I'll have to file that away. Dave yeah, Cameron, for the over under game. Next we year. look at the over under game. I don't know if I would <laughs> if I would set the over under. <laughs> if you're taking the over on two wins for any reliever, you're you're gambling. Yeah, that's right. How many uh, how many relievers in and this is we're going to do not our we're not going to do runs allowed war we're going to yeah. do x uh, we're going to do fip based war yeah. how many relievers do you think hit two wins or better by that with that measure projected or actual in 2017 how many do you think hit oh that? uh 9 mm, very close very close 10. 12 12, 12 okay. yeah 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 well, so yeah less than one per team way, way less than one per team It'd be interesting to look through and because I I see two names like Tommy Conley and Canley yeah. Tommy Canley Canley yeah Ugh, it should be Tommy Conley Tommy Chad Canley. Green came out of nowhere yeah Chad Green and uh, Anthony Swarzak yeah <clears throat> and Mike Miner of course who right. it'd be interesting to look at what percentage I mean we we've, we've just done it sort of back of the envelope here what percentage of relievers who hit two or better wins in one season like basically didn't play the year before. Or weren't major leaguers the year before. Yeah, or weren't impact guys, right? Yeah, right, of some sort, yeah. Yeah. Um, because I imagine that the percentage is higher than it is for starting pitchers um, who cross, a, you know, a slightly higher threshold. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, oh, I want to ask you this question. For over the past week, and actually just the last few days, four of the um, former Braves prospects whose contracts were dissolved, 
mm-hmm. um, following the uh, Atlanta's the Atlanta's uh, scandal mm-hmm. or punishment. Uh, four of the twelve prospects have no re-signed. Okay, uh, Kevin Maitad, uh, Levon Soto, Jeffrey Del Rosario, and Abraham Gutierrez. Maitad obviously was the big. He received the highest bonus yeah. originally of those players. Uh, 4.25 million. Jeffrey Del Rosario, who signed for only a million at the time, uh, re- was very, um, was enthusiastically written up by Eric Longenhagen, right? Yeah. Both those players, well, all told, all the four players have received something like, something between 40, about 45% of their original bonus value. Yeah. Well, obviously they've kept their original bonuses. Yep. Um, so they're, Getting, they're just getting extra money on top of it. Is something like, and we'll say fifty percent for the sake of this, is that something like you would have expected? Are they are they getting screwed? Uh, is anyone getting screwed? Is fifty percent sound like like what you would have expected? I guess. No, I mean that's. I think actually, like I'm surprised my talk got a couple million dollars, uh, given how bad he was last year mm-hmm. and uh, and kind of the way his stock has gone uh, the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, like, the reality is there just isn't as much money to spend right now, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, these guys were made free agents at a time when most of the international money from this year has already been spent, and other teams are allocating it for Otani. So you've got at least three teams who are stockpiling international bonus money, uh, not just for, the, like, their own, but they're trading for other bonus money, trying to allocate it all to Otani. Yeah, and by the way, the Angels signed two of these players. They signed right. Maiton and uh, maybe Gutierrez. But, but that's the trick, right? So you're allowed to spend either from this year's pool or next year's pool. The Angels mm-hmm. spent it from next year's pool. So they're keeping all of this year's pool for Otani. Oh, um, okay, yeah. But they spent from next year's pool, which means they either didn't have agreements with significant international free agents already in place, or they backed out of deals uh, with guys they had already agreed to sign. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know which of the two it was. Let's give them a benefit of the doubt and say they hadn't signed anyone yet or hadn't agreed to sign anyone yet. Um, but a lot of teams already had you know deals already lined up. And so if they were going to go give Maiton next year's money, they would have had to back out of the deal with a guy that they've already agreed to. And a lot of organizations might not want to do that. So it's not like these guys were just thrown into a market where there's flush with cash and teams every team could bid on them. A lot of teams either don't have money or have already spent that money and so um yeah you know kevin my got a two million dollar bonus i don't think he got screwed at all okay all right uh and final thing that i'd like to uh, bring to your attention because we're very close to the 40 minute mark here dave cameron is uh just a just a sort of a, a brief question um concerning the signing of uh by the chicago white Sox of wellington castillo yeah i think he was the third pitcher on your free agent board catcher. third catcher on your free agent board but he's down by he's like forty third overall, something like that. Forty ninth, I'm not a big Wellington Castillo fan. No, you're not. Right yeah. now, which is right, which is we'll, we will take that. And the reason you're not really, my guess is, uh, is because typically uh, his defensive and particularly his framing numbers have not been very good. He's not, uh, he doesn't I mean, have a great defensive reputation. Yeah, his defensive reputation is not great, and historically hasn't been a very good hitter. Like he was fine last year, but like even. Even when he's good, it's because some balls went over the fence, mm-hmm. not because he like he doesn't control the strike zone. He doesn't get on base. Um, you know, he's got some power in an era where power is super easy to find. He doesn't have a lot of defensive value. Is you know, he's a guy that I wouldn't want as my starting catcher. His framing numbers were markedly better in 2017 than they had been previously. 
Yeah, and as Jeff Sullivan has noted, framing numbers have become significantly less consistent year to year. So if you're paying for framing numbers, it doesn't mean you're going to get framing numbers next year. Right, and so this is what I was going to ask you, I suppose, is, and, and you've answered it in part, which is if you look at a player's framing numbers and this player's, this catcher's framing numbers have diverted significantly from the previous season or yeah. from the player's established track record, right? right. Either he's become... Uh, he, he appears to have had a good framing season after having many bad ones, or he's had a poor framing season after having many good ones. To what degree uh, ought a team, I suppose, uh, um, or ought a, a dummy sitting at his home listening to this podcast, regard uh, to what degree to regard that as um, reflective of the player's talent? Uh, somewhat. I mean, it's the most recent data point, but I would regress it pretty heavily back to the prior. I mean, it's so like Wellington Castillo caught 750 innings last year. Like, we know when we talk about, like, you know, defensive metrics needing larger sample sizes at other positions, like, we're talking about, like, one year isn't nearly enough, and those are twelve or 1,300 innings. So Wellington Castillo played, you know, half of a season in the field. We wouldn't, at any other position, except half a season of defensive metrics as like a significant number that you should dramatically pay against, right? So framing doesn't need the same sample size that other things do historically. Like it's been more steady year to year. That is eroding. Um, so now we're getting to a point where you might need a larger sample size, but we're still only talking about like 86 games from Wellington Castillo in the field as a good framer. Um, and the numbers are noisy enough that I would not take that as gospel over his history of Poor framing numbers, and I think, like, beyond just the numbers, we have to look at the fact, like, he's on his fifth team in five years. <laughs> uh, that does that matters to some degree, right? Like, a bunch of teams have had Wellington Castillo and said, nope, our pitchers don't like throwing <laughs> this guy. And, like, the teams he's been on, their pitching staffs have been terrible. And then after they've left, his pitching, those pitching staffs have gotten better. So, like, you know, the Diamondbacks... Like, they non-tendered Wellington Castillo last year when he was only going to make 4 or $5 billion to go get Jeff Mathis, who can't hit at all. And they, and they won 20 more games than they did the year before. And, like, obviously it's not like Jeff Mathis is a 20-win player, but it's not like the Diamondbacks, you know, screwed themselves over by cutting loose this valuable catcher who wasn't making any money. Um, and, you know, the fact that the Orioles had some pitchers who had had historical success have the worst seasons of their careers in the one year they had Wellington Castillo... Might not be a coincidence. So if the White Sox aren't, aren't going to be competitive, really, in 2018, why would they sign Wellington Castillo, a, a free agent? Well, he was cheap, right? So it was $15 million over two years, which is yeah. less than the crowd thought, less than I thought even. Um, I mean, he's, uh, not, he's the – wait, say the, say the contract terms again? $15 million over two years, so okay. $7.5 yeah. a year. Yeah. That's, That's not very expensive in this day and age. So – even if you're a rebuilding team, you have to spend some money. Like, you're not allowed to not spend money. The Player Association will yell at the league if you run his payroll $12 million. Yeah, they just yell at the league, though. It's not like... There's no yeah, but then the league yells at you. Like, <laughs> like the Marlins were forced to spend money a few years ago. Like, the, the Marlins weren't spending money. The Player Association yelled at the league. The league yelled at Jeffrey Loria and said, you have to spend money. And so they gave Sean Carl Stanton a giant contract extension they're trying to get out of now. Um, but I think it's it's basically... Uh, there's a there's an effective payroll floor in Major League Baseball. It's not codified, but it's there. So, for one, the White Sox have to spend money on someone. Uh, they didn't have any internal catchers who were any good. And, you know, now they get, like, some upside that if Castillo really did transform into a good framer, then they'll be the ones who control his rights after he has established that over a larger sample. And perhaps at the deadline or next winter, they could be like, oh, look, well, and Castillo is really a good framer now. You know, let's trade for him. Yeah. Let's trade for him. Okay. Hey, Dave Cameron, you fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. I am happy to hear that. Yeah. Giancarlo Stanton's probably going to get traded. 
Uh, probably before you publish this, yeah. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. We'll see, see what happens. All right, uh, Dave Campbell, that's very good. Thank you for joining Fangraphs Audio. You're welcome. Okay, that has been Managing Editor of Fangraphs.com. Dave, wait, let's do it. That has been Managing Editor of Fangraphs.com. Dave Cameron, I'm Carson Sestouli. That has been Fangraphs Audio.